flashes, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? Um, not that one. <laughs> Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Jean-Paul Gaultier bodysuits. We're talking Spanish adaptations of French novels. And we're finally talking about Pedro Almodovar. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking I am Vicente. Oh, devastating. That final line. Oof. Uh, and it just ends. And I'm like, no, please go on for 10 more minutes, which I right. never say when a movie ends. <laughs> it's so abrupt. And I can tell you, different from the book. Oh, I, I'm so glad you read this book. Everyone, we are discussing Pedro Almodovar's The Skin I Live In. Uh, this is a 2011 film starring Antonio Banderas. And um, uh, I'm going to say it courts controversy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Trace, I want to give a bit of a caveat right off the top. Usually we would kind of start with a bit of a content warning. Folks, we're going to treat this episode like normal. So we're going to step through the plot. We'll give you the production and all that kind of stuff. But even talking about some of that stuff is going to give away some of the twists and turns of the film This is basically a mystery box movie, so if you want to go in unspoiled, you really should stop. But with that in mind, uh, Trace and I would both highly, highly recommend this. We're big fans of this film. As I said, Trace, it is going to court controversy, but uh, our content warnings. So spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Yep. We have rape, we have suicide, and we have forced transition definitely not something i knew the first time I oh actually happy anniversary of sorts joe because this was the very first movie we discussed in our horror mm-hmm. article series the first thing we ever collaborated on this is true and what the fuck were we thinking picking i don't this film like <laughs> i have what? no idea we were so <laughs> in over our heads oh yeah i mean truthfully and you know you may poo poo on me for this i'm a little nervous walking into this conversation because I mean, look, this is a very gender-heavy film, and mm-hmm. we don't have a guest on this episode. We are handling this on our own, and so I I hope we can do this movie justice. <laughs> yeah. You know what? When we decided to go ahead without a guest initially, I felt comfortable because I feel like we've been getting our sea legs over the last yeah. couple of years. You know, we've been doing our due diligence, researching, making sure that we're acknowledging voices of people who are being represented in these films. And I thought we'd actually be able to find some really solid trans writings on this. And I could be mistaken. I could be overlooking something. But the best I could find was actually letterbox reviews. So it's (laughs) relatively brief. Uh, I'm so glad you said that. Because, yeah, I was looking up the skin I live in, transphobic, the skin I live in, transmisogynistic, the skin I live in, misogynistic. And Mm -hmm. everything I found was, yeah, on letterbox. But there there weren't even a lot of, like, really in-depth reviews. It was more so, this is misogynistic. This is transphobic. This -hmm. is transmisogynistic. And I was like, can you please explain? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, truthfully, I can understand that why anyone would come to these conclusions. I don't necessarily agree with any of them, but I do want to entertain those ideas because I think it's important to discuss that. Yeah, I'm most curious by the trans-related stuff. I can honestly say that I have never watched this film and thought, oh, this is deeply misogynistic. And I was very confronted when I read a couple of people saying those kinds of things. But when I rewatched it with that lens, I can definitely start to see it. And I did find a couple of academic articles that touch on areas I... I agree with you. I don't necessarily see that for myself. I think that there's one of those, the film is, 
it's depicting, it's not condoning. And I think if you also know Pedro Almodovar as a filmmaker, you would be a bit more reticent to... I guess I I want to engage with the idea of a challenging queer auteur yeah. who isn't afraid to be provocative because I really think that that's who Pedro Almodovar is. He doesn't care about appeasing you or doing what is PC. He's always going to be mm, challenging. We'll put it that way. But I think if he's making you uncomfortable, he probably thinks he's succeeding. I, I'm glad you said provocative because I was thinking about this all day today, like the semantics, and I was like, okay, do I find the skin I live in provocative? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do I think Pedro Amodovar is a provocateur? I, hmm. I, I say no, if only because to me, provocateur – what I envision when I hear the word provocateur is I imagine Quentin Tarantino or um, oh, okay. a 13-year-old boy who is just trying to get a rise out of somebody and <laughs> without any deeper meaning. And I think that, again, if you have seen any collection of Almodovar films, and granted, like, look, he is no stranger to sexual assault in his films. Um, they, oh, yeah. They actually are part of a lot of his films. Yep. But also the way he – writes and creates and works with his women characters mm-hmm. is so humane. Well, I want to say humane. I did watch Time Me Up, Time Me Down this week and that could well, <laughs> I mean, that's also an earlier film from him. But yeah, I mean, he's always had, I think, a lot of respect for women or at least women characters. Like, yes. he gives them storylines. Sometimes he does terrible things to them, but he's always interested in their inner psychology. Well, and actually, I, I was going to say this for when we started getting into the controversy bill, but I, I just want to give this blanket statement quote from Almodovar about how he basically does his films. He says, okay. if you are trying to present me as some great moralist, I have to say that when I am writing a film, I am anything but. I just want my characters to come to life. I want them to be people who are real and believable. I want the spectators to understand those characters. And so mm. I feel like, I mean, you know, you and I talk about ad nauseum, I feel like, much to some listeners' chagrin. What isn't isn't offensive and like, you know, right. what, what is appropriate? And again, I, you know me, I'm very much a no, like, have it all out there. Like a movie doesn't have to have a message. And I don't know if this movie has a message, but hmm. I guess just knowing the mode of our films that I've seen, I just don't get misogynist from him. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a fine line. And if people disagree with us, then they are yeah. perfectly within reason to do so. It's one of those things where, I mean, we are talking about matters of taste, right? Mm -hmm. And very murky morals, like the storytelling, particularly in today's film, is challenging because we're changing our allegiance as new information is being presented. Like, oh, I thought I liked this character. Now I'm not really sure what I think of them. And it's it's confronting. But I kind of like that because I do think... A lot of people are afraid to be controversial or confronting or play with these murky morals because they don't they don't want to offend anybody. And Almodovar is like, well, this is the movie I want to make. So this is what I'm doing. Well, okay, so let's talk about our relationship with this man then. So do you remember the first Almodovar film you saw? I do, yes. Uh, partially because I saw that you were making your way through his filmography, or you were, I guess, uh, revisiting the titles that you had watched. So I had to reflect on mine. 
I took a Spanish cinema class in my undergrad. It was taught by a fantastic queer man himself, Jose Sanchez. Shout out to him for opening my eyes to a lot of really different types of films. It was fascinating, actually, because it was a national cinema course. So he had a bunch of films because he was Spanish. So he just brought a bunch from home and was like, you literally can't get these movies anywhere because they're like domestic films. They were never released internationally because they were a Spanish romantic comedy from Catalan. And it's like, yeah, no one was ever going to distribute that in North America. (laughs) So it was great. But um, obviously, one of the films that he had to show was Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Mm, I will say that's a blind. So I own it. I own that criterion, but I have not seen that movie. Okay, it is really fucking good. It's like that and All About My Mother are kind of the really early standout international acclaimed. And then we get to things like Talk to Me or and then we get to things like Talk to Her and Volveo and, you know, his his more recent slate. I do feel like he's softened a little bit as yeah. he's getting older, but I think he's also making even more personal films. I, I don't disagree with you, but I also think that might just be a product of age. Like, he is interested in other stories that maybe right. aren't as, again, provocative, controversial as what we were seeing from his output in the 80s and 90s. Um, right. Okay, so what was your first film then? So, my, funnily enough, it was also in my undergrad Spanish class. Just Spanish, though, not Spanish cinema. Um, okay. Reagan Boxwell, thank you for introducing me to All About My Mother. That was the first time go. I'd seen one of his films. And... I adored it. Like, oh, it was so fucking good. You know, I'm like a 20 year old. I was like, oh, I'm gonna watch a Spanish movie, my Spanish class, man. <laughs> like and a fucking asshole, right? <laughs> like 30 minutes in, because I, I didn't I didn't know what kind of films or content Elmo de mm. did. I just knew, oh, because, okay, truthfully, I don't like the poster for All About My Mother. It's this kind of no. like weird Picasso y, like, painting of her. That movie is fucking fantastic and i told you this off mic but um it was so funny so you know i saw this movie and my, my professor uh, mrs boxwell she she knew that i loved horror movies and so she handed me a either a bootleg or maybe it was a spanish dvd of mm-hmm. Pedro almodovar's 1986 film matador and she goes oh. she gave me a bunch of content one was like hey like you know watch out for this but given <laughs> the taste i know you have i think you might like this and right she had you pegged she yes. read you she clocked you the minute you walked in that fucking door <laughs> well it was so funny because so hey so i didn't get around to it because i was a yeah, 20 year old in college and i right. lost that disc and i felt <gasps> so bad and so and matador wasn't available for the longest time no. so when <laughs> When preparing for this recording, I was like, you know what? Let me go see how many of his films are available right now. And mm-hmm. as of this day, February 8th, 2024, um, every single one of his movies is available f- uh, on streaming VOD in some way or another. So wow, you can okay. find them. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So I did finally watch Madrid this week. So that, that fulfilled a 15-year promise to my Spanish teacher. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? You should write her because I'm willing to bet she would love to hear from you. Oh, don't worry. I'm friends with her on Facebook still. And so I, I fully plan to do that. Um, but I will say, though, the, the, the other reason that I wanted to watch that movie is because, as you said, you know, Almodovar, we think, has maybe softened a little bit in the content that he puts in his films with mm-hmm. this one, The Skin I Live In, probably being the most controversial um, of his recent output. Right. So I wanted to go back and see some of his earlier films. You know, I had seen All About My Mother. I had seen Volver. I had seen Broken Embraces. You know, I would seen a lot of the modern stuff. Um, right. But I knew that Matador was going to have controversial content. And I knew mm-hmm. that Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down was oh, going to yes. have controversial content. And those were the only two I could find where it was like, oh, these films have elements of horror to them. 
Oh, okay. Okay. I would say Matador is kind of like his version of a Giallo in the same way that um in the same way that Malignant is James Wan's version of a Giallo. Like it's not a Giallo, but there's a lot of Giallo touches to it. Gotcha. But they also they link because they all star Antonio Banderas. And what I've learned mm-hmm. <laughs> is that Pedro Amodovar likes to cast Antonio Banderas as psychopaths. Yes, as psychopaths or proxies for himself. I'm convinced he wanted to sleep with Manderas early yeah. in his career, and now he looks at him as, oh, you're not only my muse, but you kind of embody who I am now. Absolutely. And, and y'all, like, you... It is really hard to describe a Pedro Almodovar movie because... Oh, my God. <laughs> there's never really a premise. Like, there, there's so many factors to his films. But, like, again, if pressed, Matador is about a Matador um, in training, played by uh, Antonio Banderas, who is psychic and has visions of a woman constantly killing men with a hairpin while they come, while they're fucking each other. Um Amazing. It's wild. And then Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, he plays a recently freed mental patient who is in love with a former porn actress. And so he kidnaps her and forces her to love him. But it's presented and like filmed like a colorful romantic comedy. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. It's very much blurring a lot of genres. Like one of my favorite of his recent films, partially because it's Gail Garcia Bernal, but also because it's exceedingly queer. Bad education, just I I appreciate that it's not his best or most consistent film, but I think that that film is just absolutely fascinating. And oh boy, do I love Gail Garcia Bernal in that movie. That's a blind spot for me too, but I will say that my husband loves that movie. Um, mm-hmm. That one is streaming, but it's only the R-rated version. There is an NC-17 oh. DVD that I want to get. 100%, because it's, I mean, it's a movie that's dealing with like uh, sexual assault from the church on young boys, so yeah. I'm hesitant to say that it's sexy, but the adult sex scenes are sexy. But, okay, I have to just say this, though, because it's so funny. So, again, like, I was, like, looking at all these movies, and I was like, okay, what are the plots of all these movies? So I want to oh I want to brush up on my Amodovar filmography. And You know what? Just put your Twitter thread as a link in the show notes, because that was kind of amazing. Okay, but let me just read this one to you. And this is for 1993's Kika. Kika, a cute cosmetologist, prepares Ramon for funeral when he revives. He proposes to the much older Kika, who has his dad as a lover. Did Ramon's dad murder his mom? What about the escaped rapist and the psycho-psychologist video reporter? Uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) There's a bit of word salad going on there, and also... I'm intrigued. Exactly. But okay, so moving into the skin I live in. So as you said, this is based on a book, a, a French novel. Um, mm-hmm. And this is Thierry Jonquette's, I hope I pronounced that right. Yeah, uh, not bad. Not bad. Good. Uh, novel Tarantula. Um, and Joe, you've read this book. So do you want to offer any insight into this? Yeah, so this is a reasonable adaptation. So if you've seen The Skin I Live In, the premise is more or less the same. So um, I guess I'm not going to go into it just just yet. But uh, there are some key sort of noticeable differences. Uh, One of them is that the doctor does not sleep with the Vera equivalent in the book. So they maintain a very frosty relationship in terms of sexuality. And also in the ending, as I mentioned, it is different. The Vera character does not kill the doctor oh do they do they stay together no they just walk away so they still go back to their mom and they try to go back to their old life but it's like 
you're done. Interesting. I'm not part of this anymore. Well, and so Almodovar, he was more interested in like one aspect of this story, which was, and I quote, the magnitude of the Antonio Banderas character's vendetta. So he wanted to focus on that. But I will say I did read the synopsis of the book and it was a lot closer to the movie than I expected, given yeah. what I had read about how it was more of an inspiration for the movie as opposed to adaptation. No, it's it's solid. It's interesting because you're definitely getting first person narration from both the Robert Lagarde character as well as Vincente. Mm-hmm. And it's it provides you a different kind of level of interaction. So like even reading about the forced transition that the character goes through, like we should note the book is from the 80s. So it's actually coming at a time when uh, the medical knowledge of transitioning was either very clinical or very speculative. So uh, think about the scene in the end of Dress to Kill, where it's like, this is what we do. We take your penis and we cut it down and we right. like fold it back. and but It's like that. Only you get to read about the process over the course of like years because you know, we skip over it in the movie, which I think is one of the issues that a lot of trans uh, audiences have with the film. But like in the book, it's a two year hormone period. So you have to read this character talk about the horror of developing breasts when you don't identify as a woman and so on. Well, so I, I guess Almodovar had been working on this adaptation for years. Like I want to say it was close to 10 years where he had his eyes on this project. And um, he said there were many things that didn't work for him um, and for the script. You know, he was reading it through the eyes of an adapter. So he says for years he was fighting against the novel until he forgot it completely and tried to make his own story based off of his memory of the novel. And mm. that sounds very familiar to what Alex Garland did with Annihilation. Right? Yeah, I was just thinking that. It's, I mean, in some ways, obviously, you're not shooting for that straight adaptation. You're probably going to piss a bunch of people off. But it Mm -hmm. also is going to help you to cement what are the key things that you're really pulling out, because it's like, what stands out in your mind? Well, and again, the whole thing with him is he just wants it to be believable. And what I what I find interesting, again, going back and watching some of his earlier films this week, I was like, oh, he he doesn't seem that interested in this in the psychology, meaning in like psychoanalyzing them to be like, this is why they are doing mm-hmm. these things. They just do them, but he right. still wants it to be believable. Whereas in The Skin I Live In, I feel like he explains the most of his character's motivations out of any of the films that I've seen of his. Yes, and it's also a bit more clinically detached, haha, because a lot of this takes place in a clinic. <laughs> you, no, you're absolutely right, because again, like so, one thing he is known for primarily is his art design, like all, mm-hmm. how colorful all of his films are, be it the, right. the, the, the sets or the costumes or whatever. This movie does not have that. Mm-mm. No, it's it's very cold. It's very sterile. It's a mm-hmm. lot of blues and grays, which, you know, I think that's part of the reason why people do discuss this as his first quote unquote horror film, yeah. even though, as you said, there's elements of genre in some of his earlier films. And I think people could even quibble, you know, oh, is this a really a horror film? I mean, horrifying things happen. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so he says, you know, it was very difficult to build a character like Robert, the Antonio Banderas character, um, to make him believable. This is all he wanted to do was make this character believable to audiences, but still have people be horrified him, but also not find him to be grotesque. And I was like, that's a tall order, man, for, for yeah. a mad scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that. He is successful, though, because Mm -hmm. I definitely understand why this character is doing things, even when... Well, actually, no, I will take that back. There's one moment where I don't fully understand it. Mm. 
No, you know. Okay, you know what? Now it's just not interesting to listen. It's to. okay. Cut you it all. Put a pin in it. Bring it up whenever we talk about it. In the plot. Okay. Yes. I. This character I find fascinating. Yeah. I find all of the characters in this movie very fascinating, but I do also find them very believable. Mm-hmm. Well, so he took so much time to make him believable because, again, if you've seen the film, you know it's a very unique situation. And so Almodovar thought his challenge as the writer was to just, again, make it more – take a shot every time I say believable, Joe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he had a, diff- a more difficult time making the situation of Vera and the situation of the Doctor believable. So I guess it was right. like, I get – the revenge, the vengeance aspect, which again, that's what he was honing in on in the novel. Mm-hmm. But upon expanding that, that was where he struggled. And you know, we can talk about whether he's successful in the end product. Right. Okay. A big inspiration of his was George Franju's Eyes Without a Face, a classic 60s art house horror film. Also from France. Well, yeah, more France. Um, he was influenced also by Fritz Lang, the guy that did the uh, M movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god, the guy who did the M movie. I, well, okay, I was gonna say Fucking M. Fritz but I, Long. He's like no. one of the most important German directors of all time, but sure. The I M am aware movie. of that, but if I just say the guy who did M, and I, I don't not everyone's gonna know that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, not everyone went to film school. <laughs> this is true. Um I did find this bit of information though. Um so the skin I live in also bears a remarkable number of similarities to 1962's The Awful Dr. Orlock which was Mm. Spain's ripoff of Eyes Without a Face. It's often credited as being Spain's very first horror film, but Mm. this, so it was one of the earliest works directed by um, Jesus Franco, whose critical reputation comes as close as possible to being the exact polar opposite of Almodovar. So he's the the Michael Powell to Almodovar's Alfred Hitchcock, if you will. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, But that film has an unapologetic excess and front and center sexuality that can easily be compared to The Skin I Live In. So Mm. you can almost view The Skin I Live In as the art house successor to the spanish exploitation films of generations prior right yeah when you alerted me of that i went and checked out his other films because the name sounded familiar and that is the director ladies and gentlemen of vampiros lesbos oh yep uh future episode you betcha. <laughs> but, okay, another thing, you know, we're talking about how, well, what is different about this movie compared to Almodovar's other films. In this movie, Almodovar was trying to fight against his sense of humor. Oh, yeah, because I uh, don't find a lot of funny in here. No, but it, I like this quote, though, because I think both of us, especially me, have come under fire for finding um, humor in some maybe heavy subject matter or events right. um, in horror films. And he says... I think it's always good to have humor in any genre. Almost every sequence, not just in my movie, but every sequence in life, humor can be present. It depends on how you feel. It depends on how distant you can be. And it depends on how much pain you suffer. But the humor is present in the most awful situations in real life. And sure, I agree with that statement. I mean, not to defend like some things, but I, yeah, I think that's a really important and open mindset to have. Well, and yeah, I mean... One of the things that you and I have struggled with is when we get criticisms from people who say, you know, I can't believe that you were laughing when you were discussing sexual assault or, you know, these kinds of things. And I think one of the things that we sometimes struggle with is that there's a tendency to even have uncomfortable laughter. Like when you watch something and you're like, I don't know how to feel right now, or I'm really deeply upset. Sometimes people will laugh instead of shudder or cry and so on. And I'm... I'm really cognizant of this because I feel like there's 
this idea that there's a, a perfect response and people ex are expected to have it at all times and real human beings don't always adhere to social conventions in that way. So, right. uh, I mean, I think he's actually talking about something else where it's like sometimes you have to find the funny in the darkest of situations because if not, it's just the darkest situation. But I, I guess just knowing the conversations we're about to have about this film and other films of this ilk, uh, sometimes you do have just uncomfortable laughter because it's like, well, what else am I going yeah. to do when we're discussing this? I, I And you know what? We're going to find out how we react. <laughs> Here we go. I mean, you just laughed. So, yes. Yeah. Well, you know me. Um, <laughs> the Skin I Live In was the first film Amodovar and Banderas had made together in 21 years. Um, you know, again, regular collaborators in the 80s. Their last film was Time Me Up, Time Me Down from 1990. Um, yeah. This film was produced through El Deseo, a company that Almodovar co-owns with his brother. Um, so I love that. They just produce their own films. Awesome. Like, <laughs> sure. That's called uh, How You Get It Done. <laughs> Absolutely. And the budget for this film was about 10 million euros, which I think is close to 11 million dollars in US money. Yeah, it's a, a tit for tat. I don't know what it was like back in 2011. Yeah. Um, they shot this in August of 2010. Uh, it lasted for four months. Uh, they shot on location in Madrid, as well as a country house outside Toledo. Oh my god, that house. Oh, so pretty. <laughs> I knew your house poor, like meter was going off. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to give a quick shout out to set decorator uh, Vicente Diaz because, oh boy, this house could be a museum. It is so gorgeously furnished and yeah, just very, very stylish. I loved it. It's also not like it's a very modern architectural style. It is. Yeah. But like the outside of the house doesn't look like that, which mm. I, I love that. Mm hmm. Oh, but you might say the exterior of the house is the skin the interior lives in. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> like anyway, so yeah, this film premieres in May 2011 in competition at the Cannes Film Festival. But funnily enough, when Amodovar was approached by Cannes to submit the film, he was still editing it. And he said, I didn't know the type of movie I had yet because I was still putting it together. And mm. so he said, no, he's like, I'm not going to submit this film there because he right. didn't think it was going to be a fit for Cannes. And I... I find that interesting from a creative standpoint, right? Like, he's editing it and still doesn't know the type of film he has. And so I wonder yeah. what that means. Like, does he not know the genre? Well, I say that. I don't think I'm out of our films. Like, they always defy genre. Have a genre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was probably still trying to figure out the tone because a lot of that could come together in the way he edits the sequences together. But then the artistic director at Cannes saw his final cut and was like, you have to show this movie, dude. Oh. So he relented. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was released in the United States on October 14th of 2011 uh, in a limited run through Sony Pictures Classics. Critical reception is very positive. We're looking at an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.5 out of 10. It's got a 70 out of 100 on Metacritic and Letterboxd users have given it the highest rating. They've given it a 7.8 out of 10. I do feel like we should note that that's still lower than the Oscar nominee kind of films, right? So All About My yeah. Mother, Talk to Her, Volver, those kinds of films, they're yeah. all going to be higher. But I would argue that they're, I don't want to say that they're easier for audiences to get their heads around, but they're not as confronting, amoral, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I will agree with you about Volver and All About My Mother. I have not seen Talk to Her. Oh, but I will say, given the plot of that movie, which is two men form a friendship while caring for their, like, for women who were in comas, mm -hmm. I have seen some dissenting opinions on the politics of that movie. Oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. Uh, also, I'll 
just because I have no other outlet in which to do this. Yeah. I would recommend Julieta, which is a recent film of his, which felt like it went completely under the radar. And I did see a bunch of people saying, oh, it's almost a return to form, but from a modern context of the years of, you know, Women on the Verge and All About My Mother and so on. Well, I will be watching Women on the Verge this week because I have that Criterion Blue. Um, do it. I will say, though, like, hey, I would never start with this movie for him mm, because I think mm. it's the, it's not the most emblematic of his skills. But um, no. the 2013 screwball comedy, I'm so excited. <laughs> I haven't seen it. It looked wild. It's, I mean, it's an R-rated sex romp, very queer on a plane. Like, people are just mm-hmm. fucking all over this plane. It's, I don't think there's a lot of substance to it, so that's why I would say don't watch it first. But it's a really fun, like, I just want to watch an R-rated comedy by Pedro Almodovar. <laughs> sure. Yeah. This uh, this movie didn't get a ton of Oscar buzz, but it did have a lot of uh, a buzz at the Goya Awards, which is, which is, of course, Spain's version of the Oscars. Um mm-hmm. Elena Anaya, who plays Vera, received the Goya Award for Best Actress. It did win the Best Film Not in the English Language Award at the uh, BAFTA Awards. Oh, okay. And, you know, Almodovar had won that same award for All About My Mother and Talk to Her. I think also All About My Mother and Talk to Her won the Oscars those years for Best Foreign Film. Yes, I believe they did. If we're wrong, it's okay. We said they might have. <laughs> <laughs> we covered our asses. Uh, but, I mean, that's really all I have. I didn't, there wasn't a ton of production history on this because I just think Mm-mm. that, honestly, like, Almodovar knows what he's doing. Like, there was no drama here. <laughs> well, yeah, he he thought about the film for a number of years, made it, released it. There mm. we go. <laughs> All right. So before we get started on the plot, a quick note about pronouns. So Ooh. we are talking about a forced transition. And again, spoilers, the end of the film reveals that the character who is made to undergo transition does not identify as the physical representation. So with this in mind, we're going to be calling Vicente and Vera using he, him pronouns. But whenever Elena Anaya is on screen, I'll be referring to the character as Vera just to help people understand what time period we're in and who they might be looking at. But still referring to Vera using he, him pronouns. Correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I will do the exact same thing. <laughs> what if I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. Uh, I mean, that's a thing, right? Because by the end of this film, we've actually taken someone who is cisgender and turned them into a transgender person. Yes, which is where some of that controversy comes from. Yeah, but uh, well, yeah, uh, we'll have things to say. We will, yeah. <laughs> so I'm also going to draw references from Andy Thomas's article for What Sleeps Beneath, uh, which is called 10 Years After the Skin I Live In, Abject, Object, and Gender, as well as Brian Eggert's review for Deep Focus Review on the film. I will say that I don't always read the articles that you pick because I, I want to like you know be surprised in the moment. Um, sure. I did read Andy Thomas's article, and I think it's a really, really, really insightful look at this movie. Yes, I agree. Not as much writing as I would have expected on this film, but the little writing that is out there is quite good. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we open in Toledo, and what we see... First thing right off the bat is Vera, who is played by Elena Anaya, and he is wearing a Jean-Paul Gaultier created flesh-colored leotard, and he is stretching, meditating, and also creating miniature paper mache busts. 
And this is all happening while he is being observed on closed-circuit camera by housekeeper Marilia, who is played by Marissa Paradis. And we remember this actress from another extremely controversial Spanish film, In a Glass Cage. Yeah, and she's also one of uh, Amodovar's, like, regular women. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Marilia is the housekeeper. We will also come to realize that she is the mother of Robert, who is the Antonio Banderas character. But for now, we're just watching her prepare breakfast. She sends it up in the dumbwaiter. And these two uh, communicate via an intercom. And it's it's our first immediate understanding that Vera is a prisoner because yeah. he asks for scissors. And Marilia's like, ha ha. Fuck no. <laughs> Needle, thread, and scissors. <laughs> I was like, mm, those are all weapons. So I'm going to say no to that. It's good that you tried, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we move to a lecture theater, and we're introduced to Dr. Robert Lagarde, who is Antonio Banderas, and he is speaking about his work on facial reconstruction surgeries. And of course, this scene is nearly identical to the introduction of Dr. Genesier in Eyes Without a Face. It's been so long since I've seen Eyes Without a Face because that was a film school watch for me. But um, mm-hmm. oh, but you watched it um, recently. You watched it this week for the first time, didn't you? Yeah, I, I watched it for this because it was a gap in my knowledge, and I heard so much about the the closeness between these two films. I was like, oh, well, I'll just consider it research and knock it off my list. And it is gorgeous and surprisingly horrifying in parts for a film that was made in france in the 60s yeah i remember certain like surgical shots that i was Mm -hmm. just very surprised that were kept in that film again for the 60s um did you like it overall I did. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where you got to get your head into the mindset because it's not going to be as action heavy. So it's slow. It's contemplative. But I was surprised at how mean it is. Like, I kept mm-hmm. thinking we were going to be introduced to a woman who was going to be the quote unquote final girl. Like she was going to be the one to stop all of the madness. And we kill a couple of young women so that we can just take off their faces in that movie. Yeah. But it's, it, the thing that both of these movies have in common, I think, is it's about, and this is what Amo Devar was like honing in on, is the <laughs> abuse of power. And that's where okay. the mad scientist comes in. Yes, yeah. And it's fun that we're getting to once again talk about a Frankenstein movie that's sort of hiding its true nature, right? Like, we're really getting back into the swing of these kinds of narratives. Like, we actually have a Frankenstein coming later this year from Del Toro. But even, you know, talking about the mad scientist-iness of things like Reanimator on the pod recently, Birth, mm-hmm. Rebirth, and all that stuff. So I'm kind of fascinated that mad scientists are back. Well, and so I, I will give this a of our quote, too, on... on- his kind of thesis of the film because what he says Mm -hmm. is the abuse of antonio's character is an abuse of a very concrete specific nature and that is through conducting scientific experiments which might be considered very legitimate science doing everything to change a person's identity i don't believe you can go further than that for me that is the abuse to end all abuses it is the most severe abuse i can conceive of and it's an abuse of power that abuse can be perpetrated through something that is in and of itself perceived as good and he this is a, in an interview with him and he goes on to really link a lot of this to plastic surgery oh wow okay and he says like he doesn't, he doesn't shame anyone for doing it but like he even goes to say like I wouldn't put someone who's had a bunch of plastic surgery in one of my films. Like, imagine if I was doing a period film, they wouldn't look like they lived in that period because of, like, the work they'd done on their face that was so modern. Mm-hmm. That's a very anti-Hollywood perspective, for sure, for sure. Well, I would expect nothing less from him. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I think it's a great idea, particularly for this film, which is so interested in this idea of outward, you know, like, what do people perceive of someone from the exterior, you know, the actual skin that we're seeing? Right. And then who are they on the inside? Does it actually reflect who they truly are? Because pretty much everybody in this movie has secrets that they're hiding and the projection that they mm. you know have like their exterior does not always match who they are on the inside yeah that's fair um also i'm sorry i need to rewind for a second so back to this provocateur conversation that we had earlier mm -hmm. you know who is a provocateur who is also one of almodovar's proteges uh are you gonna say i no i was gonna say alex de la iglesia Oh, that's a better provocateur. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Because, like, again, y'all go back and listen to our episode on Perdita Durango. But, again, I think I get provocateur out of that film and a lot of yes. his work. Whereas I don't see that same kind of attitude, I think, in Almodovar's mm. films. <laughs> yeah, not trying to get a rise out of you. Just maybe trying to make you think about things a little differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of experimentation and sciencey shit, Robert goes home to this giant house. Obviously, it's in the country, so we've got a gate that keeps people out. We've got an at-home clinic, so we can do secret experiments, and we get to see him testing blood, freezing it, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, he's a scientist. <laughs> he does science. He does science for a living. So he goes upstairs and uh, we can see that he is also a man of taste and culture because on the walls we can see Titian's Renaissance paintings, Venus of Urbino, as well as Venus with an organist and Cupid. And it's really fascinating because when we are introduced to Venus on this closed circuit television, like Robert is watching him on the giant, giant screen, the way that he is laid out on the couch is an exact replica of these paintings so it's very oh. much filtered through robert's perspective how does he see vera how does he see the quote-unquote female form so it's about control and the gaze but also what does true beauty look like well it's on the inside <laughs> this movie would maybe have you think otherwise yeah, a little bit <laughs> with this fake animal skin <laughs> yeah so robert is looking at vera and he decides, okay, I'm going to bring in the usual opium dose. And when he goes in, he discovers, ooh, uh, closed circuit television is not reality. So what I'm seeing is not reality because Vera has actually killed himself or attempted suicide by slitting his wrist with... I don't think this would ever be successful, but he has tried to cut his wrists with, like, paperback novels. Yes. Um, I play, like, magazine pages, too. Um, yeah. It's an act of desperation, and yeah. uh, I, I think immediately, though, this is when you're kind of like, oh, okay, like, this is the movie I'm in for right now. Mm-hmm, yeah. So Robert takes Vera down, and Vera declares he wants to die. He doesn't want to do this anymore, but the problem is that because of this skin, which we will come to learn is artificial, it's extra resilient, you know, it can withstand burns and mosquitoes, uh, this suicide attempt does not take, and Robert is very easily able to repair the damage. But it's still a horrifying scene, though, because Vera's got marks all over his body. Yes, yeah, because as we'll come to find out, like, the skin was administered in a bunch of different patches so it again we're giving frankenstein it looks like it's been stitched together in some ways oh. it's very angry looking all the scarring i guess i wasn't even thinking about that this is the new super skin on vera but i guess i wonder if he would have been more successful if he had normal human skin 
Mm, I think so. Yeah. 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 Because the, the whole thing that we learn about this skin, which P.S. is called Gal, which is just so telling because we yeah. come to realize that this is the name of Robert's dead wife, which is sort of what instigated a lot of the madness in this movie. So we we come to realize that, yes, he's been experimenting on creating this almost synthetic skin, which is very no-no. He's not supposed to be doing this kind of research without mm-hmm. permission. So he's actually going against health and safety. The president of the university or the hospital he works at is like, uh, don't let me catch you doing this. Well, it's called transgenesis, and it's basically introducing non-human genetics or genes into human genes. like. And putting them on humans, mm-hmm. that's, again, I guess, like, in the realm of science, that is, no, 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 that, that is an ethical no-no. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, the fact that he then puts it on a human fucking being that he has yeah. administered illegal surgeries to is, like, this dude is either going to die or go to jail by the end of this movie. <laughs> yep, um, and one of those will happen. Mm-hmm. So we are getting more exposition after Robert has patched up Vera. We jump to another talk he's giving at a library. We learn that his wife died in a car accident and that he's taken a leave of absence from performing surgeries. So, okay, we're filling in some details about who this man is and what he's doing, but we still have no idea why he has what appears to be a very young woman imprisoned in his house. Yes. Oof, boy. So he's back at home. He's watching Vera on the TV again. Interestingly enough, this is the second time that we see him looking at this giant screen. I read a piece that actually said Almodovar did doctor the image to make Vera's skin look even more perfect than what Uh-oh. Elena Ayana's skin looks like in real life, just to make sure that we understood this is the fabricated gal skin. You know what? That 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 makes sense. I mean it's not it's no different than what like what airbrushing on a model in the pages yep. of a magazine. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we see Robert assume the inverse position of how Vera is lying down on this kind of chaise lounge. This shot is so pretty, by the way. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean this movie well, yes, more cold, more sterile than many of Almodovar's other films. So fucking gorgeous. Yeah, this, I mean, again, like this particular one I remember, like the shot composition in this, like the way, because it looks like Vera is looking at him, but then he looks at the camera and it, mm-hmm. it, the shot composition is impeccable. Oh, yes, yes. And this is actually another painting. Egress's uh, Grand Odalesque is what we're evoking with this, which I believe is another painting that Robert actually has in his house. Mm, gotcha. So Vera asks if they're finished and what the future holds, suggesting that, okay, are we finally finished fucking around? Are you going to let me go? (laughs) And he even suggests, hey, maybe we can try living together. You could start to trust me. And Vera presses against Robert in a very sexually suggestive, like, I know you've been watching me. Maybe we can make this happen. And Robert just gets flustered and he ends up leaving, locking the door and so on. Yeah. So let's spend a little bit of time with Marilia because we really don't understand what she's doing. Well, and we get this little bit, you know, where she's looking at Vera and goes, he shouldn't have used her face. He'll have to kill Mm -hmm. her. And we don't we don't know what this means yet. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, when Marilia is engaging Robert, she basically is saying, like, you, you've got 
to kill this person. Like, we can't keep doing this. You're sick. You should not have used the same base. And at this point in this film, it's still very confusing. We do not understand the relationships between these people or how long any of this has been going on. So the mystery is definitely lingering over everything. Yeah. So we see a bunch of staff leave the villa, they cross the road, and then a person in a tiger costume shows up. It's Carnival, Joe. (laughs) It is Carnival, yes. And we will quickly come to realize that Zecca, who is played by Roberto Alamo, has used this as a disguise because he's actually looking for a place to lie low because he's wanted for a robbery. And he has come to ask his mother for help. So Marilia is his mother, and he basically says, hey, uh, can I hang out here? And also, can Robert do some plastic surgery on my face so that I'm not as recognizable? <laughs> Get rid of these here scars. And see, I think at this point, I, again, you're with any unmotive art film, you're like, where... Where is this Where going? going? Like he, he's so good at introducing seemingly like nonsensical or like unrelated elements and mm-hmm. making them related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, especially this character, where like we're introducing him in an outlandish costume. It feels like it's a completely different film. It's like, is this going to be important? Do I need to pay attention to these relationships? And the answer is like, oh yeah, you yeah, fucking do. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So as Zekka and his mother are sitting in the kitchen, he takes notice of this closed-circuit TV. Vera, what he presumes is a very attractive young woman. So he's disgusting. He ties up his mom. He gags her. He licks the camera where Vera's face is being projected. But let's be clear, though. It is obvious at this point that he recognizes Vera. Yes, but we don't understand that. So it's like, he seems to recognize her, but he's horny. Like, this is a bad dude, very clearly. So he ends up searching the house. Um, At this point, a gun has actually gone off because Marilla was going to kind of force him to leave. And so when we cut to Vera, who is trying to meditate, we can see that he looks uncertain. And I love that at this point, you're thinking, oh, maybe he thinks he's going to be able to get out or he thinks he's about to be murdered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Vera waits. And when Zekka tries to open the door... Vera runs by, but we end up in a scuffle. Zekka is obviously bigger, stronger, more muscly. And we get this conversation where, yeah, you're right. It's very clear that Zekka knows exactly who Vera is or believes he knows. Well, because he he says, I left you burning in the car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we know that, oh, that's what Marilia's conversation with Robert was about. He gave this person the face of his dead wife. Although we don't understand that all just now. Not just yet, but I mean, that's definitely what what this is feeding into. And then we get, um... And then we get rape. Yeah, we get rape. Not the first we will have in this movie. No. This is obviously very difficult to watch. There is a bit of a fascinating moment where Vera almost seems to recognize, okay, can I barter with this person? Like, I'm going to have to give something up because I didn't get away from him. But he seems to recognize me. How can I leverage that? So we see the wheels are turning. And Vera is like, okay, well, if I go through with this, will you let me go? Will you get me out of here? Or even, you know, hey, let's not fuck in the house. Let's go outside. And so it's this interesting negotiation of power within a sexual 
assaults that I feel like we would never see in a North American movie. I 100% agree. I mean, yeah, this is deeply uncomfortable. And, like, we have to go through the entire scuffle as he is pinning him down um, and, like, mm-hmm. ripping this suit off of his body and just, like, yeah. I mean, quite literally molesting him. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It's very but, but, confronting. And you think it's over, and then we have to go back into the room so that we can get, like, a bunch of thrusting and all this kind of shit. While Marilia is watching all this on the TV monitors, because she's tied to a chair that's facing all these monitors. So she's watching her son mm-hmm. rape Vera. Yes. So this is when Robert comes home. He frees Marilia, takes the gun, Chekhov's gun. You're not going to introduce a gun and not have somebody get shot, right? Oh my so... god, have we, ever, have we ever actually had a Chekhov's gun? <laughs> have we ever mentioned a Chekhov's <laughs> gun? <laughs> sure we must have, right? Surely we have. We have Chekhov's everything, but I don't remember ever talking about an actual Chekhov's gun. <laughs> In any case, it comes full circle to fruition right here. So Robert basically just barges right up there. We are still in the middle of this sexual assault, and Robert just shoots Zekka dead multiple times in the back. And again, this is the thing where you're like, oh, I thought this character was going to be around for longer, and they are not. Yeah. No. We just fade to black, and then we are cleaning up this mess. So Robert has taken the body in the car, and we are left with Marilia cleaning up the bloody sheets. And this is where we learn that Zekka was secretly Robert's half-brother. So we learn that Marilia is actually Robert's mother. We didn't know that. We just thought she was the housekeeper. We learned that Zekka and Robert were brothers. They apparently never knew. And you're just like, wait, what? What? Yeah. What is going we, on in this fucking movie right now? We get now? so much exposition dump here. In a way that is not characteristic of normal Almodovar films. Mm-mm. But um, but yeah, so it's like, I think there's also a bit of a class critique here too, because the whole mm-hmm. idea is that Marilia, you know, had sex with the servant and that's how she got Zekka. Um, yeah. But then she either had sex or was raped by her employer and that's how she got Robert. But then the, her employer raised Robert, which is why he got the quote unquote better life and became right. a doctor, whereas Zekka grew up on the street selling drugs. Yeah, and it's, if, if you can start to put your finger on it, you realize, oh, this is a movie about a lot of doubles, right? Like some are doubles of the same person, which is Vicente and Vera. Vera. And some are, oh, it's these brothers, right? Like Zeka could have had Robert's life if he had been given everything that Robert had, but because he didn't, he ends up on this path and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we also have more exposition. So as Marilia is sitting around the fire with Vera, we get the backstory about what happened exactly between Zeka and Gal. That's Robert's wife. They were apparently having an affair. They were going to run away together. They get in this car accident and Zeka survives. Gal is horribly burned. So once again, we are back into eyes without a face territory. Apparently Gal survives, but her recovery nearly breaks Robert. So he just loses sense of everything else, focuses on getting her better. But then when she catches sight of herself in a window, she's so horrified by what she sees that she dies by suicide. And then Trace... This all happens in front of a character we didn't even fucking know existed. Yep. Oh, we have a daughter. So <laughs> so she throws herself out this window, killing herself, and lands right next to her daughter, Norma. Mm-hmm. Who is played by Blanca Suarez. And we should note that this is, again, identical to Eyes Without a Face, where the Edna character sees herself in a 
in a window and dies by suicide moments later. I do love, again, the shooting of this because, again, this is Marilia telling Vera all of this at, like, at, a, at a campfire on the driveway of this house. Mm-hmm. Um, we're constantly telling these flame stories, fire stories. And yep. at, the, at the end of the exposition, the flames fill the screen as we transition to the next scene. Yeah. As we said, it's not subtle. No, but it is effective. <laughs> so when Robert comes back, this is when he tries to sleep with Vera. And are we to believe this is the first time he has tried to sleep with her? I believe so, because when Vera was trying to renegotiate the terms of this relationship, quote unquote, mm-hmm. he tells the doctor, you know, I know that you've been watching me. So I always read that as I know that you've been watching me, but you haven't made a move yet, which is why Vera tries to sort of put the moves on Robert as a way to, you know, hey, let's renegotiate this. So if this is, in fact, the first time Robert has tried to instigate intercourse with Vera, um, Mm -hmm. that is gross because I can read this in a couple of ways. I can read, um, oh, he's jealous that Zeka Mm -hmm. got to have sex with Vera. So, And by sex, I mean rape. Uh, So he wants his turn at it. Oh, his vagina is ready now. I can have sex with it. Or he sees him as a victim and weaker and he wants to protect him and be sort of more paternal or romantic quote unquote yes and again we don't know exactly the relationship here outside of the fact that he's keeping a woman hostage well someone we think is a woman hostage so there almost is oh god i don't i almost want to say like there's something touching about him trying to like no, 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 none of this is touching. Never mind. <laughs> right? it, it, it's just so challenging because everything that we've been led to believe about Robert is that he is this man of high moral virtue, right? He's a dedicated scientist, well-respected by colleagues. He's rich. He's famous, successful, all this stuff. And we know that there's something going on with Vera, but we're also we're kind of aligned with Robert because of the way the film is shot, because he's introduced in certain ways. So we we think that, you know, he is keeping this woman, I'm using quotations, yeah. we think he's keeping this woman prisoner for her own good, right? Because even we're conditioned to think, oh, well, because Vera tried to die by suicide, they must be mentally ill. So this is all for their own benefit. I will say too, I mean, like, have you seen Time Me Up, Time Me Down? I haven't. So it would make a really good double feature with this film, if only because they both feature Antonio Banderas keeping a woman hostage. Uh, right. <laughs> but we're, but like that film's a romantic comedy about Stockholm Syndrome. So it has a quote unquote mm. happy ending for our characters. Right. Juxtaposed with this, what we have here. (laughs) I mean, I think you could argue there's a happy ending in here as well. Well, okay, but there's not a happy ending where our couple has the happy ending, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the movie we're doing. (laughs) Well, I'm calling Time Me Up, Time Me Down a happy ending. It's a happy ending for the couple, but a lot of people watching it may not view it as a happy ending. (laughs) Yeah. No. Again, this is what makes these kinds of movies so interesting because you have to reconcile, okay, the movie is presenting this as happy, but I know the genesis of this relationship is not healthy. This is not okay. How do I actually feel about it? But that thing goes back into the depiction uh, versus endorsement thing, you know? Like, so if the sure. movie, I mean, I know I'm talking about that movie now and not this one, but like, in, just in general. So, like, like, what you just said, you know, a movie that has something that is not happy, but is presenting it tonally, stylistically as happy. Do you then think the movie is telling the audience, you should feel happy for these people? Or do you think the movie is trusting the audience to know this is fucked up? 
Yeah, I mean, I would always default to the latter because I assume that artists are intelligent and they believe that their audiences are intelligent as well. But I think it also depends on who's making the art because I will say one of the films that often comes up in conversation with The Skin I Live In is a film called The Assignment. Have you heard of this one? I don't think I have. Oh, oh, wait, is this the Sigourney Weaver, Michelle Rodriguez one? It is. So it's almost the exact same premise, only Sigourney Weaver is the mad scientist and Michelle Rodriguez is the uh, male to female forced transition character. And that movie is fucking awful. And it's so fucking offensive. And it it basically just treats it for shock value. It might as well be sleepaway camp, only not campy. That I mean, not I'm not like, oh, I don't know. But that makes me want to watch it because I have heard about how horribly offensive it is for years. Um, Because it's it's like a 2010s movie. It's not even that long ago, is it? No, it's it's relatively new because I saw it at TIFF. Oh, and you hated it. it. It was just one of those things where I didn't realize that's what the movie was. And then when I watched it, I literally couldn't believe like the movie is so disinterested in engaging with the politics on any kind of intellectual level. It's an action revenge film and it's awful. Uh, yeah, see that that needs to be like, I guess, maybe lean heavy in her exploitation. Yeah, which I think is what it thinks it's doing. But it's it's not even poor taste enjoyable. Yeah, that makes sense. Although I will say, Sigourney Weaver looks like she's kind of having fun. Ugh, I was anyway, uh, that's kind of the thing, you know. It's like Sigourney Weaver is a mad scientist. Like that's a big enough draw for me. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved it if it was just that. But yeah. <laughs> So I do want to actually bring in a quote from the book because we're about to jump back six years for an extended flashback that gives us insight into who Vera really is. But this idea that Robert would willingly go to bed with the person that he has subjected this to is different from the book. So I'm going to read to you a passage where the Vicente character, he's been abducted, he doesn't entirely understand why, and he's starting to put it together, figuring out why Miguel, this is the Robert character, has abducted Mm -hmm. him. So first person narrator. Still, you hated yourself for corresponding so well to his intent with your beautiful girlish face as Alex... Alex is an interesting character. This is the Christina equivalent, so the lesbian co-worker from Vicente shop. shop. That character is new for the film. And in the book, the Vicente character actually has, it's basically the person that he committed the robbery with. That's the person who ends up finding him and trying to help him, but ends up raping him. Oh, okay. So it's like extra weird in the book. Yeah. So, as Alex used to say once upon a time, as for your delicate, finely jointed body, it had driven Miguel wild. He had asked you one evening if you were homosexual too. You did not understand this too. No, you were not queer. The temptation might have entered your mind now and then, but no, there had never really been anything like that. And Miguel was not that way, as you had suspected at first. So this is an interesting passage because it suggests that the Vicente character had, you know, maybe entertained homosexual thoughts. Right. Like in the film, he's a bit of a drug addict, so he's a bit fluid in terms of sexuality, experimentation, and so on. But this gets to the heart of why Miguel or the Robert character in the book doesn't ever sleep with Vicente after the sex change because... oh. 
at the heart of it, this is still a male-to-male relationship, and this is still a tale of revenge. So the fact that the movie introduces a sexual relationship between captor and captive is fascinating to me because this is Almodovar really fucking around with, oh, okay, is this character empathetic to audiences like has robert truly fallen in love with the person that he subjected all this to what is your answer to that question i don't know so a bunch of things that came out in readings is that this is actually part of robert's obsessive need to control it's why he gave vera the same face as his dead wife so he's actually trying to protect the memory yep. of his wife because he failed at preventing her from dying by suicide. So he's not actually in love with Vera. It's when Vera is raped and threatened by Zeka that Robert realizes, oh, you know, I need to protect my dead wife. Yes. So he goes to bed with the woman he loves. Yeah, I think and look, Marilia has already like talked about this before. Like, like what what the fuck were you thinking doing this? Mm-hmm. But it's a thing where it's like, you know, we keep saying mad science. Just mad scientist, mad scientist. But I do believe at a certain point, honestly, it might be the Zeka's rape of Vera that mm-hmm. Robert does effectively lose it because the the line right. between Vera and Gal is mm-hmm. blurring it's at erased. this point. And yes, yeah. and so even though he does still call Vera Vera, I don't know if he actually sees Vera. You know? Yeah, like in in some ways, right? When Vera says, "Are we done? Are we finished?" If you think about how Robert is approaching the relationship from that point on, it almost does seem like he's acting, oh, I've got my wife back. So yeah, I can have you go dress shopping with Marilia. I can have you out and about and so on. It's interesting because in the book, the Robert character, the scientist, is quite a bit more vindictive. So he will actually prostitute Vicente out to men. And watch through, like, uh, a two-way mirror and, like, just laugh. Okay, I was going to say, wait, how does how does Vicente not then leave? But I guess he brings the men to the mm-hmm. house. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Ooh, so, so that's extra rapey. Extra rapey, yeah. It's very, 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 very gross. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, we're jumping back six years. And this is where we start to get the origin story, but we also change the primary... <laughs> person of interest right i love this though because okay so like like the 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 the, the exhibition we got from marilia that's like okay a campfire tale mm-hmm. we're about to get again okay, it's technically one flashback to the same time period six years mm-hmm. before but we're getting two separate flashbacks via dream sequences yeah i love that wild mm-hmm. yeah so this is all happening while robert and vera are sleeping together and we're seeing their two respective perspectives of how this one incident unfolds so we jump back to this jazzy wedding robert is there and he's there with his daughter norma who we learned this is briefly after the death of gal so gal died by suicide norma was briefly institutionalized because of what she saw and this is kind of her first mm, reintroduction back into society so she's accompanying him to this wedding she seems to be okay but she's making eyes at this cute boy vicente who is played now by yang cornet um, he also won the Goya Award for Best New Actor for this film, by the way. Oh, interesting. I do think he's really, really good. Yeah, he gives me Ben Wishaw vibes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. 
So Norma is making eyes at Vicente uh, across the the wedding. And then we're still following Robert's perspective because this is his flashback. So yeah. he has lost Norma. So he leaves the wedding. He goes outside. And there's people fucking all over the woods outside this wedding. I think everyone's yes. on some kind of drug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting because... In some ways, you could read this from a psychological sense, right? Like, you know, he's so worried about the state of his daughter and the fact that his wife was technically cheating on him and planning to leave him for her lover. So he goes out and just sees it's sex everywhere in the bushes around him and he can't find Norma. And then someone on a motorcycle speeds by. And when he finally finds Norma, she's unconscious against a tree. And when he wakes her up, she begins screaming at him because yeah. she clearly does not recognize who he is anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, insti the insinuation here is that she has just been raped. Yes. And has either repressed it or she is now scared, terrified of men and so on. Yeah. So we jump back to the present. Robert wakes up. He looks at Vera. And then we get this close-up transition. And the movie loves to juxtapose uh -huh. Vera and Vicente. It's gorgeous. I love the editing in this film as well. You know, the, the first time I watched this movie was for our article way back in 2018. And I cannot remember when I pieced together that mm -hmm. Vera was Vicente. Because you would think, honestly, this transition it's right so here. It's so obvious when you know. You, yeah, like, hey, these are the same people. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like we're putting them side by side so you can see, hey, that person is this person. But you would never think that. And here's the thing, though, because we're looking at this in 2024. I think even in 2011, the concept of this film would not immediately come to audiences' heads. 100%. I've seen people describe this as an exploitation film, the same way that you talked about the assignment. Yeah, I mean, see, it's exploitation by way of art house. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or art house by way of exploitation. Yeah, it's really, really well done exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, do you think this movie is exploitation or I guess exploitative? Oof. Um, yeah, hard question, I, I, I know. So here's the thing. I don't because we find out about the trend, the forced transition an hour into a nearly two hour film. This isn't the shock treatment of a gender reveal in the final moments. It's not treated as terrifying. What's treated as terrifying is Vicente's experience having to go through this. So I think it's really interesting. So like this is really when we're going to start to see Vicente's experience of that evening, what actually happened with Norma and so on. But just this this change in perspective, I think, forces us to start aligning a little bit more with who is Vicente? Who is Vera, actually? Yeah. And Thomas says, critically, the order of events as presented sets Vicente up as a victim, not an antagonist. Though he is by no way innocent, we'll talk about that in a moment, mm -hmm. by acquainting the audience with Vera for the entire first half of the film before even learning of Vicente's existence, Almodovar ensures that, in the context of the plot, his crime serves as little more than a pretext to give Robert an excuse to enact his sadistic fantasy. Yeah. So really, the reason that this is important is because as we watch Vicente's experience of the night of the wedding, so we do a second transition from the dream into the wedding, and we see that Vicente is, he's high on ecstasy pills, so he's not quite in his right mind. He spots Norma, 
they kind of have a meet cute moment. They go for a walk outside. She does come off as childish because she is, you know, quite a bit underage. Um, she jokes that she's on medication. He jokes that he's on pills. She finds the clothing that she's wearing very restrictive. So she starts to throw them off. And he, he reads this as an invitation for sex. Yes. When, in fact, as we will learn later, she doesn't like having clothes on her because they feel personally restricting. Yeah. So it's just like it's two different people's experiences that are completely different, but they think that the other one is in sync. So yes, you're right. He misreads this as an invitation for sex. So he starts to put the moves on her. This actress is really good because there's a point where he is kissing her and her face just goes completely vacant. Yes. It's like she goes into a fugue state. Yeah. She is dissociating. She's barely even there. So he lays her down on the ground. He starts to remove her underwear. And this is also an interesting point of contention because I've seen numerous people read this as a rape. So, you know, partially, I think, because she's not really cognizant, like she's not engaging with him anymore. But also they see this as like, oh, he he penetrates her. It's aggressive. He deserves what he gets as a result of this. Well, like, I don't feel sympathy or empathy for his experience at all. And then other people look at this and there's a line later where he says, I don't even know if it was a rape. I don't know if yes. I was able to because I, I was so fucking jacked up on the pills and so on. And when I watch this, I'll confess, I don't see this as a rape. I... I will say I don't either. However, as Thomas said, Vicente is not an innocent here. I don't think his right. actions are good in this scene. I mm -hmm. I might qualify it as attempted rape. Right. Because he, he – I mean, again, she started screaming. He hits mm -hmm. her and knocks her unconscious, which, again, yes. at least he has the wherewithal to be like, oh, this is not good. And mm -hmm. he, like, leaves instead of, like, rapes her unconscious body. Yeah. But, yeah, the intent here was not to rape, but I think that's what makes this scene so interesting and confrontational is mm -hmm. that I could absolutely see how anyone would view this scene as a rape, but yes. it makes you look at the nuance of it. And I think when discussing rape, a lot of times, and I understand why, there isn't nuance. Rape is rape. And this scene presents it in a different way. Well, I think the scene wants you to consider not just the events of what happened, but also the implications, because this is... You know, in another film, this would be the inciting incident, and we would yeah. have a whole movie that's just a rape-revenge film. Like, that's technically what Robert is doing. I was going to say, yeah, this is a rape-revenge film, but just where, where the rape survivor is not the one seeking the revenge. Yeah, so it's promising young woman only with a mad scientist, but also yeah. you maybe have to question whether or not it actually was a rape, and do we feel anything for the person who then gets the revenge Put upon them. Well, and that's and that's why I think though do, having us introduced to Vera for that first hour is so important mm -hmm. because yeah, if we had started with this scene, I feel like the, it would immediately turn the audience against Vicente in a way that might be hard to come back from. Yeah, absolutely. whereas with this, again, once you realize what's going on, you're kind of like, oh, 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 yeah. okay. There's another important detail. So before Vicente hops on the motorcycle and drives away, as Robert saw in his flashback, Vicente takes a couple of moments to smooth out Norma's clothes, readjust her top, her, her dress, and so on. And it feels like a really important moment to show that he he feels either bad or he doesn't want her to be exposed, even though he is leaving her in an unconscious state and possibly just sexually assaulted her. Well, he's also rolling. 
He is rolling. And and again, like, it's one of those things where do you say, oh, well, okay, that excuses it or that well, excuses him. And no, no, no. It's and like then, you've, you've really, the movie wants you to ask these questions and have these conversations. And, and honestly, though, that is what Almodovar does in almost every single one of his movies. And that's mm-hmm. why I like it so much. Absolutely. So the next day, we follow Vicente as he goes to work. I mentioned Christina earlier, but I think I may have skipped over the scene where we we saw Vicente go into his mother's dress shop where he works. He's got this lesbian friend. Uh, she is played by uh, Barbara Lenny. His mom is played by Susie Sanchez. And like, it's, it, it feels like, oh, okay, this is who this guy is. He's kind of adrift, a little bit aimless. You know, he talks about taking too many pills and how he doesn't really have a plan or anything. But yeah. he's he's talented in terms of he can make a dress. He shows it to Christina and he says like, hey, maybe I'll wear it or you can wear it, whatever. Well, that's the other thing. And not to be like, oh, he looks gay. But mm-hmm. some, I, again, like, at first glance, I, I actually thought Vicente was a gay man. Sure. And He's also got because, very, because, very soft, very feminine features. I mean, this is the same as the character in the book where it's like, you know, the the not joke, but the observation in the book is that his partner in crime, Alex, so the the person he does the robbery with, mm-hmm. is this big, hulky, masculine guy who just like is covered in hair. So the polar opposite of this character. Exactly. So the idea of trying to force a transition on this character, even with hormones, even with, you know, years of hiding this person in a cave, it just wouldn't it would be very, very difficult for them to pass. Whereas mm-hmm. with the Vicente character it actually is almost reasonable because he already had the sort of softer outline that you could work with. So, okay, I guess another big, like, topic of discussion about this film is that, Mm -hmm. you know, once we know, okay, this is what's happening, like, Vera is a transitioned uh, Vicente. Right. But rather than make up this actor playing Vicente to still play Vera, we cast an entirely different actress to play Vera. And it is a a cisgender woman playing Vera. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be interested to know if, like, if, if Almodovar made this today, if he would make the same decision. But mm-hmm. I, that's where when we're talking about the the reveal as shock value, you know, that, that sleepaway camp thing, which we don't have in this movie because it's introduced yeah. at the second act. But by casting a cisgender woman as Vera, that to mm. me is maybe leaning into that. Uh, we're, this is this is the, we're pulling the rug out from under you. It's a trick type of thing that maybe. Right. Uh muddies the waters of the intent a little bit i feel like Hmm. yeah i mean i'm trying to think of how you would do this because it would be inflammatory to have you know yang cornet just like put him into drag or something for all of the vera scenes like that wouldn't work either so i i think if you remade it now you would probably have to ask a trans a trans woman actress to go into like male drag for the Vicente scenes. But whether you feel it is still that at the hour mark, as opposed to the end of the film or not, it's like, I don't know. I This is tricky. I don't know if there is a better way of doing this, but I can definitely understand why particularly, you know, trans audiences would look at this and be like, 
fuck you? Well, I mean, that's the thing, though. Like, you know, gender dysphoria as the monster, you know, the person who has, like, uh, 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 like restructured genders as the monster. Um, mm-hmm. That's what, that's kind of the thing. But sleepaway cameras, like, oh, it's just there for shock value. Boom, shock ending. 100%. Yeah. So, again, yes, the placement of the reveal in the second act gets rid of that. But then, yeah, this casting where it's like, okay, well, if you use the same actor for both roles, mm-hmm. it might be more obvious. And then the, the impact of the reveal in the second act would be less lessened yeah but then that means though you're you're still doing it for shock exactly you're still doing it for shock and so that is the only part of the film where i'm kind of like i could buy Mm -hmm. into these negative critiques of this aspect of the plot Uh i don't subscribe to them but i understand them more just because of this casting yeah, it's the same way that I feel about the the cries of misogyny with, you know, okay, well, when Vicente is forced transition, and we see Vera, you know, that character struggles against male oppressors, is sexually assaulted, is humiliated, and all these things. And the suggestion that, oh, being turned into a woman mm-hmm. makes you weaker, makes you a prisoner, makes you more easily controlled, and so on. And I'm like, yeah, I see it. I will confess, it's not something I really look at when I watch the film. But when I read other people talking about it, it does make sense. I get that. And again, that's where my, my if this is the only emotive horror film you've ever seen, I, I can see how you might come to that conclusion more. Mm-hmm. But also because I know that Vicente never identifies as female, right. that gets rid of that for me pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. And and with the, the casting of cisgender actors and sort of playing into the shock exploitation-y reveal, you know, Almodovar famously has a bunch of like trans actors and drag queens, and I'm not conflating the two, but he's very open to different forms of sexual expression, different orientations. Like he is very sex positive in a lot of particularly his early films. So it's that line, right? I, I, and y'all, again, I, I will wholeheartedly recommend if, if you have issues with the trans and like gender lines in this movie, go watch All About My Mother because that movie is quite literally about – it's about a woman who loses her son, her teenage son, in an accident. And so she mm-hmm. goes to seek out his father who is a transgender woman. Right. Okay. I'd forgotten about that. Plot. Yeah. And then you got Penelope Cruz as, a, as an HIV positive pregnant nun. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so good. So good. <laughs> okay. So sorry. So after this horrifying incident at the wedding, we follow Vicente as he goes back into work and he's clearly upset and or feeling mm, he's not feeling good about how the evening went. So he talks about how he thinks he's going to leave town. So whether you want to say, oh, he realizes he made a huge fucking mistake or right. he feels like he needs to run could be a little from column a and b that's my thought process too i mean again like i don't think this guy has his shit together in any shape way or form so <laughs> yeah i i do feel like i should say in the book there is no question he and alex hold the norma character down and rape her they each take turns the vicente character is really not a good person and he kind of knows it and he sort of relishes in it so there's less ambiguity in his intentions in the book i'm oh okay so question Mm -hmm. for you then i I like then that we make uh vicente a more layered character um that's not just purely evil but i guess though that makes robert's vengeance more palatable or or, um you're on his side more i i I don't know do you have a preference on which 
type of Vicente you like? The one who is more pure evil, actually a rapist, or the one where there's maybe a gray area? I think for storytelling purposes, the gray area is a little bit more interesting to venture because it forces people to confront or question things. Yeah. But I will say that it it almost works better for the revenge part, not because you really want to see bad things happen to Vicente, but you have to ask yourself does this punishment fit the crime? Like, do you think this is an appropriate response from the robber character? So I think that actually augments it. Whereas in the film, it feels like it becomes much more evident in the back half that Robert is a monster. Yeah. 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 I mean, like he's a lot the of monsters in the story. He's the villain. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay, so yeah, so Vicente is going to take off. So he hops on his motorcycle, he drives out, and he is almost immediately run off the road by a black van. And I've got to say, I would love to see Almodovar come back and do more horror films because the sequence of Robert in this mask yeah. is really scary. We haven't mentioned it yet, but Alberto Iglesias' score is great in this movie. I specifically noted in this scene because it feels like a horror movie score. Um, yes. That's also what happens in Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Like, everything about it screams rom-com, except the mm-hmm. score for the movie. Ooh, I love that. That's so... Mm-hmm. Ooh, just you're you're playing with people's expectations and what they're used to, and I love that polarity. Uh-huh. So, yeah, uh, again, this is a thrilling scene, but I agree. It, it, it's the only, like... like well, I don't say the only scary part. A lot of this movie is scary. Like, the ideas uh-huh. in here are scary, but this scene mm-hmm. is trying to scare Yes, it plays more conventional thriller horror film. Yeah, thank you. Much better. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so we fade to black after this, and then when Vicente wakes up, he is not wearing pants, he's chained up, he's in a cave, and, um, you know, we we have a quick moment where his mother goes to the police station and we learn that the bike was found by the cliffs, by the water. The assumption is that his body has gone out to sea and that he is dead. I will say one of the issues that I have with the film compared to the book is that the passage of time is very clearly outlined in the book. So we understand it's been months, it's been weeks, it's been this long. And the film has an almost like elliptical approach to it where you don't know how long Vicente has been in this cave. We just see that he's desperate for Robert's attention because he hasn't seen someone in so long. But you don't know if that's days or weeks or months or something. Yeah, and of course we know it. So we know it's it's at most six years, <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> everything we're about to see will follow up the next six years. Yeah. So we do get to see Robert going to visit Norma in the psychiatric institute, and he he's trying to make a connection with her, but she can't be around men at all. So this this moment is so just genuinely sad where she's so terrified of him that she just backs away whimpering and hides in the literal closet well and we will learn the reason for this though is because so after the rape or not rape of her by vicente Mm -hmm. she woke up after her after she was knocked out and saw her father above her and so she like viewed him as the rapist and then like became like terrified of all men which is it's very similar to what happens in the book. It's like she basically just has fits every time she sees him to the point where the doctor says, I need you to stop coming because every time she starts to make progress, you'll visit and we're just back to square one. Mm-hmm. And I think the film is almost a little meaner in an 
I'm going to say slightly unnecessary way where this doctor almost gets combative with Robert. And he says, you know, we shouldn't have let her out so early after her mother's death. But also, I didn't think she was going to be raped when she was out with you. And I'm just like, holy fuck, man. Like, maybe take it down a notch here. You know what, though? I... I you're gonna laugh. I was kind of like, you know what? Good point. Because again, like that—that's that, such an outside circumstance. But he—he he mm-hmm. is putting the blame on Robert, right? Well, and Robert is blaming him for like, you know, what happened? How come you haven't been able to help her and so on? So clearly, two medical professionals who are just going at each other because they're like, well, who's really to blame here? Yeah, <laughs> and right? the answer is patriarchy. And but. maybe that's not the important question they should be asking. <laughs> Oh, it's like, how can we help this poor fucking yeah. girl? It's it just, it's their egos, male ego, male scientist ego. Yes, exactly. Okay, so we're back in the cave. We see Robert hosing Vicente down. He's bringing him rice. This is the extent of the food he's getting. Well, and see, at this point, we're like, am I watching a French extremity film? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Which is ironic, given the fact that we're adapting a, a French, French book and also echoing a French movie. <laughs> So time is passing. Uh, I do actually like this sort of jump in time where we don't know how long it's been, but we just see Robert at a funeral and it's Norma. She has died by suicide. And you're just like, this is awful. Everything in this movie is awful. No one is having a good time now. Well, because at this point, I because I don't think Robert's intent at this point was to force a transition onto Vicente, but this this is what sets him over the edge. He's lost everyone, right? Yeah. And the person that he blames is the person who's tied up in the cave. So yeah, uh, this is where we start. So we see Robert shave Vicente. This, I'm, I'm putting myself in Vicente's shoes for this. It would be so terrifying to wake up in this situation. This person is mm-hmm. not speaking with you at all. And then they shave you with a straight razor. Yeah, yeah. Just... Absolutely not. No, and then a healthy dose of chloroform to knock him out. Hmm. So in the book, this is when we begin administering the hormone injections, and Vicente goes along with it because you know I'm so hungry for attention, for companionship. This like basically the Robert character breaks him down like a dog. He actually starves him for a longer period of time. So the Vicente character becomes so dependent on him Mm -hmm. that he will just do anything he asks, including let him inject him with hormones. Well, yeah. And and I guess that maybe there's more elements of Stockholm syndrome in the book than there are in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, so back at the house, this is when we're introduced to Robert's colleague, Fulhanico and the team arrives and Robert, you know, he's rich and successful. He's well-respected. So he's got these fake-as-fuck papers that says, hey, this boy, he definitely wants to undergo gender reassignment surgery. And this team just says, uh, okay, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Because mm-hmm. um, at this point, he's already, like, on the table unconscious. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, it's happening. So we get this fade to black. And when we resume the film it's from vicente's perspective as robert tells him hey guess what i just gave you a vaginoplasty and you now have the anatomical body parts of a woman waist down and we still have young coin in this role we have not swapped him out for elena and i yet uh mm-hmm. 
he says the, the vaginoplasty, but then he doesn't call it a vagina. He keeps calling it an orifice. Yes. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have this moment where Vicente climbs up onto a chair to look at his new anatomy in the mirror. We don't see it. We just watch the reaction. Mm-hmm. It's deeply upsetting. And then almost immediately, Robert lays out what is basically eight different size dildos and instructs like, okay, so now you've got this orifice and your life depends on you keeping this open and deep. So I'm going to need you to practice over the next several months sticking these objects into yourself. And let me tell you, this might be too much information, but you know, it's this podcast, whatever. Um, sure. I, I have a set of these for my butt um, sure. because when I was trying to learn to bottom, I was like, I, I, I have like very low pain tolerance. So I was like, okay, I need to like do this. Um, there's it's like, called an annual training kit, everybody. Look yes. into it. Yes. The only thing is though, I mean, like obviously your, your sphincter like goes back to its like elastic, like tightness. Yes. Whereas that's not what we're trying to do with no. Vicente's new vagina. No, just trying to loosen things up a little bit. Yeah, like actually make it deep enough. Well, for Robert's penis, actually. Oh, God, Trey. <laughs> but, no, but, but that's the thing is like, I, I guess I didn't think about that at this point. Like, you know, it's like, why are we going to give Vicente the face of his wife and not mm-hmm. his daughter? Oh, God, that's well, so no, no, much no. more disturbing to think of. But no, I understand what you're saying. Because, yeah, like, was the intention always because I think at this stage, it's I want to humiliate you, which is maybe where, again, that misogyny comes into. Because what could be worse than being a man who has to now have a vagina? Oh, Oh, yes, yes. Castration anxiety. Exactly. Just that. Um, And then I think at a certain point, it's I've already taken you this far. Do I continue? Right. Because I've lost my daughter now. So maybe the next logical step is to try to bring a family member back. But yeah, it's like. It was the intention always that you wanted to fuck this person because that's exactly. why you gave the wife's face and not the daughter's face. Because if it was the daughter's face, I, I, I would assume he would not try to have sex with her. And so, I mean, uh, you I, would hope not. You will, yeah, you would hope not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, no, but but that is the thing, though, is like, and, we, and we don't get the answer to that question. We don't know why he chooses no. his wife over uh, over his daughter outside of the fact that yeah, he does. But again, I don't know if he always planned to fuck Vicente. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we we don't know. It's just one of those things where we get to hypothesize about it because the film wants you to think of these questions, but it's not interested in actually giving you answers. Well, and I think, again, going back to Almodovar's thing about believability, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to give you this answer. So is Robert's, are, are Robert's actions believable without me having to explain it to you? And I think they are. Um, I still don't I think so. completely yeah. know when or why like this was done, but mm. it's believable enough. Yeah. So I I do feel like I can answer part of one of my questions. So was the intention always to go further than this? And the next scene actually does answer that. So I apologize. Oh, okay. Um, So Vicente cries and says, you know, I want to go home. Are we done? Like you, you had your fun, basically. And Robert says, no, we're only just getting started. So clearly the intention was, I am going to fully transition you over. You will look like a woman. Right. Uh, but again, we don't know whether it was always intended to be wife or daughter. So this is also when Vicente finally gets up the courage to say, why are you doing this to me? Like, what brought yeah. this on? Why have you abducted me and done this? 
And so we debate the rape. So Vicente says he can't remember, and Robert says he will never forget. Yeah, because I think he his exact line is like, I don't think I actually raped her. And yes. again, like it's a thing where it's like, well, what 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 do <laughs> I always think about um Yes, then, how are we classifying this? What constitutes a full rape as opposed to I always think about that movie Waitress with Carrie Russell, where she asked uh uh Nathan Fillion, Well, how pregnant am I? He goes, Very pregnant, really. There's only one degree of pregnancy. <laughs> She goes, no, how far along am I? So it's like, yeah, what degree of rape is is this, you know? It's called rape is rape. It's all rape. Yes. Yes. But but you also understand why Vicente is like, I don't. I don't think I raped her. Again, I'm not defending this. He is not an innocent in this scenario, as we've already established. But I understand why Vicente is like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. And that's actually why I do think that the film takes this more interesting line for the most part because we get to have these conversations about is this actually right. justified whereas in the book it does feel more like okay this is really fucked up but is it appropriate given the circumstances yeah does the punishment fit the crime <laughs> yeah exactly Ugh. so we've got a, another passage of time and we can now see we've, we've moved on to Elena Anaya and we see Vera is wearing this eyes without a face style mask yep. as Robert is assessing his new skin. So we've got this navy blue body stocking that we get to watch Vera put on in close up. This is when you can really see those angry scars. And I, I mean, honestly, it's giving me pinhead vibes only minus the pins. That's interesting. I was getting um, Sally from A Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, you know what? That's more appropriate because Sally is actually constructed. They both work, though. It's fine. It's a, Frank- it's a Frankenstein work. thing. Yeah. So this is the first attempt that Vicente, now Vera, tries to make. So when when he asks for help getting zipped up into this bodysuit, he elbows Robert, tries to make a break for it. Robert's got this whole fucking house under electronic lockdown. It's really yeah. impressive. And Vera says, I'm going to kill myself with the scalpel if you don't let me out. And even tries to. But this oh, is yeah. when, of course, we're dealing with the gal skin. So Robert just patches up the neck and we're good oh, to go. Oh, okay. I, that makes so much. I keep forgetting it's super skin. Yeah. Because <laughs> no, because I forgot that he succeeds in slitting his mm-hmm. own throat. So when this happened, I was like, oh, oh, Whoa. where are we going? But yeah, because yeah, Robert says we were lucky. Yeah. Which is just so upsetting because it recontextualizes the first suicide attempt that we saw, you know, which is obviously quite a bit later in the events of the film, but earlier in the runtime. But it's like, how many times has Vera tried to do this just to get out of this? And it's like, again, you know, we talked about some of the troubling aspects of the trans representation in the film. But if you look at this as symptomatic of body dysmorphia, which is I'm trapped in a body that I don't identify as, and this idea of suicide as a way out is just, I think it's really relevant to the trans experience and the queer experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Because the, the movie does a really good job of making you realize how horrifying it would be for Vera, particularly where it's like, cool, yeah, I get to learn how to meditate and build paper mache, but also I'm fucking trapped here and I don't know when this person is going to go off on me or what the rest of my life looks like. Well, and now you're trapped also in a body of a gender that you don't identify as. So yeah. again, that, that, that's what I find so fascinating, right? Vicente becomes a transgender person because of Robert's uh, Mm -hmm. all the surgeries and it's i mean yeah yeah 
Yeah, like as a cisgender person, I get to watch this and I'm not even going to pretend that this is an equivalent experience to what our trans brethren actually go through. But it helps me to understand how awful it would be even just by proxy for this character. And I'm like, yeah, no, that that looks really, really fucking awful. And mentally, I don't even understand how you would process it. Well, and I'll bring in one more quote from Thomas here, who says, you know, like the film avoids painting gender dysphoria as being responsible for the criminally insane, you know, which is what so many of these films do. Mm -hmm. It also legitimizes the lived experience of transgender people, humanizing them by compelling cisgender viewers to watch in horror as a person is forced to occupy a body that is at fundamental odds with their internal identity. But... The flip side of that, like those films before it, it uses gender as a foundation for a number of shocking revelations made throughout the film, firmly Mm -hmm. tapping, literally, into Freud's castration anxiety. These conflicting ideas are at the root of the film's tumultuous critical response, its legacy marred by its over-the-top use of the latter to attempt to achieve the former. I don't know if I fully agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I'll confess, I don't even know how popular this film is. So I I guess you could say within the circles of people who have seen it, the people who then want to have the debates about it, does that result in a tumultuous reception? But I mean, I guess I'm curious to hear from listeners about their experiences with this film and how they feel about a lot of these issues, because I just feel like I want to hear more responses to this film. Yeah, I mean, if anything, my hope is that we introduce like, a lot of people are watching this for the first time that we are that are, people are watching this because we're covering it. And um Introducing someone to Amadavar, um, that's that's a good day for me. <laughs> sure, yeah. And if this movie is not your cup of tea, please do keep an ear out for the other examples we cited because they may be more your bag. Well, because I, I do think that this film is a, a generally an outlier when compared to the yeah. rest of his filmography. Agreed, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's time to reintroduce Marilia in this extended six-year flashback. So she shows up at the house. She takes note of this increased surveillance that Robert has, and she makes note of the patient that we are watching. So he he definitely categorizes this as, oh, this is for Vera's own good. That's why I am protecting him. So, you know, just don't give him any sharp objects. Don't unlock the doors. Don't ever <laughs> let him out. So... We also see that Vera has been doing a number of drawings and writings on the wall. This is in part to keep track of the time. And this is how we ease our way back into the present mode of storytelling. So we end the flashback by starting the writing at the top of the wall. And then we see in the present day that Vera has reached nearly the bottom. There's something so sad, too, because as he's writing all this, you know, there's a part where he just keeps reminding himself, I breathe, I know I breathe, Mm -hmm. because it's something like... He's losing, not losing his mind, but he's losing track his of sense his, of self, right? 100%. So he has to remind himself, I'm breathing, I'm alive, I mm-hmm. am Vicente. Yeah, I mean, you also have to remember, the film doesn't capture in quite the same clarity. But in the book, it's really evident that Robert gets him addicted to opioids. So they're, we're doing opium on the daily Yeah, because he also says opium helps me forget, but Mm -hmm. forget what? Forget the trauma, forget who he was, because helps me forget would imply that he wants to forget something. Right. How do you read this? I personally read this as forget the trauma, but also losing time, because that's why we're keeping track of the dates. Yeah, I I mean, honestly, like, you got to take small favors if you're in a situation like this. So getting high a bunch, um, Mm -hmm. sure. 
Well, and you frequently see this in depictions of people who have been imprisoned, right? It's a way for them to mark the passage of time when every day is exactly the same because you can't leave a small confined space. So, you know, this is very clearly an opulent prison, but it's still a fucking prison. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no TV. No, there's a TV. That's how that's how he learns to meditate. And oh, he's watching National watching Geographic. Yoga. Yeah, he's watching yoga. That's right. I think he probably only gets like two channels. I but... was going to say, he has a limited TV. <laughs> it's the worst. There's no streaming. It's like having to pay for ads. It is a really good advertisement for yoga, though, because... <laughs> <laughs> like Vicente or Vera gets oh, not gets over, but like is able to survive because of getting in touch with himself through the act of yoga. Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, it's a bit trite, right? Because yeah. of course, you know, yeah, yoga and meditation is all about finding yourself and remaining connected and grounded and all this kind of stuff. But I did like that when we see Vero learning how to do the meditation, like you can tell that he's not fully buying into it initially, but he's trying it. And it's very much a, this is how you can find tranquility and freedom. Which for six years, Vero will not be free. No, 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 no. Okay. So... Because we are now back in the present, we are on the other side of the rape with Zeka. We've gotten rid of the body. We slept together, but we didn't have intercourse the previous night. Mm -hmm. But the renegotiated terms are still on the table. So uh, Vera brings Robert breakfast as Marilia watches very closely. And Vera basically says, you know, okay, what I suggested where we live together, but I'm not imprisoned. I still want that. So Robert seemingly agrees to let him go. Vera puts on a dress, leaves with Marilia, comes back with shopping bags later. But during that time, Robert is paid a visit by his old friend, Fulgencio. So Robert basically tells his old partner, hey, we're not doing surgeries at my home clinic anymore. And initially, I didn't understand why he decides this now. But I realize it's because he's too worried about Vera getting discovered, right? If yeah. Vera is out and about around the house, we can't have random people well, being brought in for surgeries. But I thought that was interesting, right? Like, why is this center in his house? Because it also implies that the mm -hmm. recovery period, like his, his patients stay at his house. Yeah, it's never fully explained. I'll confess I didn't think of the recovery time. Obviously, we do see him experimenting, creating the gal in in this space well, so i figured he did this in part because he was maybe making some extra money on the side but also because he just needed the space to conduct some illegal medicine shit. well i was because Florencio says you know hey the other sex change patients we have like the isolation of your house why are you not doing mm -hmm. this anymore oh, but you're right mm -hmm. they do make a statement though you know we're about to find out you know he's like this person didn't want a sex change blah 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 and he's right. like well no we've done things illegally before without proper documentation obviously so Ooh. i took that to mean that well maybe because the black market shit is what you're saying exactly people that want the surgery but can't like i don't know, can't get it for one reason or another because of insurance or money or whatever so right. i yeah then i took it to mean that yes yeah, so the, the ones that are under the table surgeries uh mm -hmm. do to spend their recovery at, at his house away from an actual medical center yeah, you know what? That totally tracks. That yeah. makes perfect sense. And again, though, but that's something where it's like, that's good. They're doing good work for actual transgender people. Well, maybe. Or it could just be, you know, people like Zeka who just want cosmetic surgery because they committed crimes. Oh, yeah. Maybe. 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 <laughs> now we're like American. We don't know. Again, we don't know. Right? We're in American Mary territory now. 
Oh my god, yes. Oh, crossover. That's crossover. A, yeah. good also good double feature. <laughs> well, good. Well, it would be an interesting double feature. <laughs> I watch one movie, I watch the other movie, I take a Lysol bath, I cry myself to sleep. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So Valencio is definitely not feeling this vibe and essentially tries to blackmail Robert, right? He says, yeah. well, I wasn't going to bring it up, but the picture of that boy that we operated on is definitely listed as a missing person on this here newspaper. Um. Okay. Did you make note of their word choice to say cunt? Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting, especially hearing it from medical professionals. What he says is, I should have known something was off when he wanted a cunt with no hormones. And I was like, "Yeah, that's a very interesting – I mean, y'all, y'all, y'all we, we are proponents of the word cunt. I get it. Sure. But I just thought it was very weird. Um, mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. I was just I, – I, I found it notable, I guess I should say. Yeah, it, it definitely – Makes me think of a kind of gendered slur, right? Like, right. this does seem like a negative use of cunt. Yeah. But I could also read it as, well, he's just really pissed off. And so that's the word that he could use in this sentence with the most bite. I don't know. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I could see that, too. I don't know. Anyway, Robert ends up pulling a gun on him. It seems like we're about to get some kind of Wild West shootout. And this is when Vera comes in. And I'm curious, Trace, how do you read this scene? Because initially... I read it as, oh, Vera wants to take care of the situation himself. So he doesn't want Robert to bring the attention of the authorities when we had to get rid of a body or something like that. But this would have been easier, right? Like this is an obvious opportunity to say, yeah, I never wanted that. I'm a prisoner here. Please get me out of here. And this is the first time I saw this. I thought to myself, okay, well, he has Stockholm Syndrome. He is in Mm -hmm. love with him. There we go. And that is Elmo Devar then subverting our expectations. If you are familiar with his filmography, like tie me up, tie me down. Right. But But no. But no, yeah, because because there's never any point where you think that uh, by the end of the film, you know, once we know what's going on, Mm -hmm. never. Vicente is never like actually wanting to do this with with Robert. No, no, this is all about I've had so many years to plot on how to get away with this and I'm going to seize the opportunity. I guess the reason that Vera doesn't act here is because Robert is the one with the gun. So there really isn't a great shot. There isn't as much to be gained by confiding in this person. But I buy into your reason though where it's like, no, he wants to take care of this himself. Right. Yeah, Yeah. I I totally buy into that. Yeah. I mean honestly, I would too. Yeah. After this long, I I would want my own revenge. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to lie. I find it really, really upsetting when we basically go from this moment where Vera effectively saves Robert from his former business partner. Then we just kind of cut and we're having a really aggressive sex scene between yes. Robert and Vera. And I, I cringe. This whole scene is just so uncomfortable because... You understand what's going on in the power dynamics, and it's awful. Well, because it's uncomfortable, too, because it's it's happening so soon after his rape at the hands of Seca. And you would, like, that's where the whole idea with Robert, I'm like, is he just jealous that someone Mm -hmm. got to have sex with Vera before he could? I'll confess I'd never thought of that, and that just makes it even more upsetting, if true. I I read this as we finally shed the baggage. Robert maybe has bought into this fib that Vera has protected him. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, cool, I guess we are in love. I've got the person that I hate, but the face of my wife. So let's definitely go to Poundtown. And as an audience member, we're all just like, 
<laughs> like yeah. my my husband was watching this with me. I couldn't remember if he had seen it before when we watched it for our article series, but mm-hmm. he he sat down and he ended up watching this with me, and he almost left during the scene. He was like, "I can't do this. This is disgusting. I'm so upset right now." <laughs> like this, well, yeah, this isn't a rape scene because Vera is consenting, even though Vera doesn't actually want to have sex with Robert. Well, okay. So I'm glad you said that because now I'm finally going to bring in Brian Eggert from Deep Focus. So (laughs) Eggert says, to survive, Vicente fulfills Robert's view of a woman by becoming a seductress, using his new body to tempt his captor. Herein is the rich metaphor of Robert as an enforcer of the patriarchal social codes that promote gender binaryism and disparity, and Vicente as an unwilling adherent to those precepts. More disturbing is how, when Robert takes advantage of his subject sexually, he has sex with a mirror image of his wife, a shadow of his daughter's rapist, and his equivalent of a Frankenstein's monster. Ugh. Yeah, it's very damning. So we're we're not suggesting that Vera is a monster. That's not the language no. that Edgar is trying to uh, facilitate. It's more that... Robert has really he's he's drunk his own Kool-Aid to a certain degree. Like, what are you doing if the whole purpose of this was revenge that now you're suddenly saying, no, I'm in love with this person and I'm willing to abuse them sexually after horribly forcing them to transition against their will? Well, that's the thing, you know, so so Vicente says, I'm sorry, Vera says his vagina hurts. Mm-hmm. And so as, as opposed to stopping, um, <sighs> Robert's suggestion is, well, we can have anal sex. Yup. Yup. It's, I just, this is the thing where I'm like, okay, I'm ready for this character to die. Antonio Banderas, I fucking love you. I want this character to die. But at the same time, though, I mean, this is a two hour movie, but it doesn't feel like the movie's about to wrap up. Oh my God. No. The fact that there's basically two scenes left. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I I, I will say that we're we're about to get to it, but Robert's death, I actually find not very cathartic. (laughs) No, but I think that that's by design. Like, I don't think this is supposed to satisfy. Yeah. So essentially, Vera says, oh, I've got some lube. I just bought it today. It's a total bullshit line that we all understand what's really happening goes downstairs gets the gun from the office comes upstairs i love the look of surprise on robert's face because you can tell he was not expecting this and he just takes what two three to the chest oh no no but not honestly the most satisfying part of this but you promised i lied Mm -hmm. shoot 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 yeah Yes. Now, the problem is, is that we are not alone in this villa. So even though, oh, I do also love that we shoot Robert dead while he is naked. There's something oh, additionally humiliating about, that. about this. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's lying dead in the bed, but Marilia is still around. And because she never, she never bought what Vera was putting down, the whole changeover, even when she was taking Vera out for clothes and shopping and stuff, she was like, uh... What if he tries to hurt me or run away or something? So she comes upstairs. She's got her own gun. And I love this. This is just so cat and mouse bullshit that Vera is hiding under the bed and just pops Marilia in the chest. But not before she says, I knew it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is interesting because I don't feel any empathy for Marilia in this movie. I love this actress. I think she's great at this role. I think that she is facilitating evil 
Like, she knows that she has two bad sons. She even tells Vera at one point, I think it's in me. Like, I'm the reason that they are so fucked up. It's in my guts. And she still lets it go on. She, uh, I wrote this quote down. She says, the in- insanity in her entrails. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I, I don't feel... <sighs> I empathize with her to an extent because, okay. I mean, this also is a working class, like, servant woman who I don't think sure. would have had any, like, and, you know, she had to have one of her sons ripped away and raised by, although she did raise Robert, she says, like, even though, mm-hmm. like, it was the rich people's son, technically, she still right. raised him because she was the help. I don't know. It, it, it's just a... It's complicated. It's complicated. Like, I am not upset that she is dead, but I understand a lot of her decisions. Yes, I would agree with all of that. So... Okay, we have dealt with our oppressors, and now Vera is free. So the final scene of this film ends with Vera going back to his mother's dress shop and introducing himself to Christina and his mother. Basically, he uses the dress to convince Christina, and then we call mom over, and the film just ends with the line that you open the episode with. And I will say, as much as Robert's death is not cathartic, this ending is surprisingly genuinely cathartic. But then the movie just ends, and I'm like, fuck. I like this ending. I really do. Yeah. Do, I, do I want it to keep going? Yes, absolutely. Yes. But the thing is, the, the explanation of the catharsis comes from, from Vera talking to Christina, not mm-hmm. his mother. So – we don't mm. get to really see the reaction of his mother outside of just, you know, I am Vicente. Oh, there we go. Fade to black. Right. But we do get to see Christina's reaction to this realization. And yeah. I like that we get that, but I would have also have liked to have gotten that from the mother. I wonder if it's just like it wouldn't have been any better or it wouldn't have been any different. I mean, I I was intrigued because I was – we don't spend a ton of time with the mom character, so we don't know what she would have thought of seeing her son mm-hmm. as a woman. Like, in some ways, this is – it's a satisfying ending because we appreciate that Vicente has actually not lost himself, right? Like, yeah. he still knows who he is enough to say that even though the exterior no longer reflects the skin. But – It's interesting because we really have no sense of what life will look like moving forward for this character or even if he will find acceptance. Like Christina looks like she's going to be fine with it. But we never get that reassurance with his mom. Well, I I was actually thinking about this too. Like, you know, he kills Robert and I was like, that might be the only person that can undo Mm -hmm. what he did. Oh, I was thinking also exonerate you because you might go to prison. Oh, I mean, at this point, I think it'd be like, the the evidence is literally <laughs> Vera, <laughs> yeah, Vera's body, um, Vera's skin. Oh, because they can check the skin and see if it's super skin. Um, <laughs> sure, yeah, but no, but I was just like, because you know, wh- what is Vera's life? I mean, well, I'm sorry. It, at this point, it's Vicente. I am Vicente. Right. What is Vicente's life after this? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and does he remain in a female yeah. body, or does he seek out surgeries to to revert? The, the transition. I, I don't know. I mean, by naming himself as a male, you would have to assume that he would look to Ed go options. back yeah. to detransition, as it were. Yeah. But I don't know. It's an ending that I think matches perfectly all of the, the rest of the film because it raises a bunch of questions and it makes you wonder. And then it's over. It doesn't give you any kind of answers because that's never been the intention. Yeah. 
I mean, again, th- 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 that's why we're left asking these questions. Um, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just that. Oh, boy. Well, that is the skin I live in, y'all. Um, <sighs> heavy movie, lots of discussion points. I, I, please let us know. I mean, if this was a first time watch for you. I would love to know what everyone thought, how you're parsing through your feelings on this film. If we have any, if we have any transgender listeners we have, I would actually love to know your insight on this as well and how this made you feel. If you're comfortable sharing that story, of course. Yes. And hopefully people heeded the content warnings and didn't check this out just kind of willy nilly because I do think that this film could be genuinely upsetting for a lot of folks. I I would agree with that. But hey, again, go watch his other films that aren't as upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your description. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Um, I think Volver is a really good, easy one. There we go. Yeah, yeah. But um, all right, everyone. Well, uh, before we announce that we're covering next week, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And if you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you will get 289 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on Hannibal Season 1, Episode 2, No Way Up, Suitable Flesh, Lisa Frankenstein, and to coincide with that Diablo Cody-penned 80s set film, uh, our audio commentary for the month will be on... Heathers. 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 <laughs> uh, Joe. Yes. Next week is my birthday film, although I didn't pick it, but... um, <laughs> I was going to say, you would have not picked this I one. I would have not picked it, but that's okay. I- I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, what are we talking about next week for my birthday? <laughs> oh, wow. This is just going to make it extra special, because this is definitely more a me movie than a you movie. Mm-hmm. We are jumping a couple of years ahead, sticking in the 2010s. We're going to talk about the very stupid Isabel Huppel stalker movie... Greta. I'm so like there are so many parts of this movie. I like this is actually the movie that turned me around on Micah Monroe, if you could believe yes. it. Um mm-hmm. Micah Monroe is actually like the second best part of this movie after Isabel Huppert. Yeah. But there's so much that I don't like about this movie. <laughs> well, it's hilarious because I was reflecting on this. This was the year we also got Ma, and I remember we were having debates about which film has the uh-huh. better sort of, oh, it's an A-plus villain performance by this lead, but also the movie around them is just not doing enough. Well, and my issue with Greta is, I guess that was your issue with Ma, too. Mm-hmm. It needs to go crazier and lean into the camp factor. And it, it, yeah. it dips its toes in it, but never dives in. This is true. But yeah, it is another Neil Jordan joint. So yes, there's a fun to be had. <laughs> there, well, there's some fun to be had. Uh, but until <laughs> next week, everyone, we can cross out the skin I live in. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.